And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you might live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's that moment when you're doing a series on the Ten Commandments when you'd like to change direction, when you'd like a different text to preach on, when you'd like to just wait for Nikki to do the poem and get up and say amen and go home. (laughs) This is that Sunday. We live in a society not unlike the society of the early church. St. Augustine talked at length in his City of God about the ways in which the late Roman society of his time was saturated with images of sexuality and images of uh, sexual behavior and practices everywhere. He felt caught by that. Augustine affirmed that our bodies are good things. Despite everything you've read about Augustine, he actually does do that. Or everything you haven't read about Augustine but have heard. Augustine affirmed in the 5th century in the early 6th century, that God has created us for much good. That that sex is a gift. But that we live in a society that has challenged the root of that gift and the hope of that gift. We live in a similar kind of time. It's different. It's got its own challenges. It's got its own ways that knot us up as a church. But at the root, the question of you shall not commit adultery is a question 
of fidelity, of, of sticking to it, of being in togetherness. There is a, a pattern to the ten words of freedom, what we call the ten commandments. Next slide. Uh, and essentially, freedom comes not from, at least according to Exodus, freedom, our freedom, comes not from some self-evident proposition. Freedom comes from God, who says to us, you experience my freedom when you love me and you love your neighbor. Which, of course, begs the question, how do you do that? How do you love God and love your neighbor? Well, the first four commandments unpack how we love God. It's our priority in life. It's not a transaction. God seeks relationship. We love God with integrity. We don't use his name with, with vain purposes. We use it with integrity. And we love him by trusting him enough to rest every seven days. It isn't all up to us. But then how do we love our neighbor? Well, I think it's interesting that there are four commandments that speak to how to love God, but there are six that speak to how to love your neighbor because loving our neighbor is far more complex a deal than loving God. Love of God's a pretty straightforward reality. Loving our neighbor gets touchy and testy and difficult. And so Moses, as the law, the Torah is constructed, begins with loving neighbors, calls us to a society that's more than just individuals. That we honor our father and our mother. We honor our descendants and our prosperity. We honor connections and relationships. And we also love our neighbors probably by not killing them. <laughs> that preserving life is part of loving neighbors. And that leads us to today. Loving neighbors requires faithfulness, fidelity in relationships. And I think Nikki in her poem hit it on the head beautifully that this, while it is framed in Exodus as a question of how we are intimate, it has ramifications far beyond that. <clears throat> because there is freedom in fidelity. Two things about some of the art you're going to see today. I did a Google search for art about fidelity. And this is the first painting that popped up. <laughs> Which reminds me that if you want real fidelity, go get a dog. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I think there's a, there's a truth here. Uh, fidelity isn't just about being nice. It's about being with somebody who's broken. It's, it's, about, it's about giving our hearts 
without expecting in return. Uh, dogs love us not because we feed them. That's, that's cats. Sorry. Tim and Chris are coming after me after church, I can tell. Dogs just love us. They just put their muzzle in our lap and say, yeah, I like you a lot. They give themselves. And this picture represents that. Is this guy with his arm in a sling and his head in his hand, whatever he's gone through, old Yeller is there. I know, Old Yeller gets shot in the end, but... <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> but he's faithful. This one is faithful. So at the time that this commandment was written, in the ancient Near East, adultery was basically an economic crime. It was treated as an economic crime. You diminished the value of the family unit by sleeping with somebody else. And so it was treated as an economic crime. Uh, it was also interesting that, for the most part, punishment was, showed uh, gender equality, that men and women, in most ancient Near Eastern uh, contexts where we have legal codes, both men and women are punished equally for adultery. But most required that they be caught in the act, which can be a bit of a challenge unless you think something is going on and you, you know, hire the uh, 10th century BC equivalent of a private detective to go and intervene. But mostly the ancient Near East uh, understood adultery as an act that made the gods angry. Now, why did it make the gods angry? Well, because the gods saw human beings in a proprietary way. She's cute. She belongs to me. He's a hunk. He belongs to me. The, the gods saw adultery as messing with their prerogatives. That's how the ancient Near Eastern theologies in Egypt and Syria and Babylon emerged. Gods had a proprietary interest in having first dibs, as it were. The Hebrew Bible takes us in a completely different direction. In creation, in the creation narratives in Genesis, we read the most stunning language in the ancient world. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God gives the male and the female his image. He says, the man and the woman are created in our image. The Babylonians don't say that. The Egyptians don't say that. The Syrians don't say that. Only in Hebrew Scripture do we read this notion that we are endowed, male and female, equally 
with the image of God. That's it's a new word. It's good news. It's, it's the very first glimpse of gospel in Scripture. That God creates us as equals, that he creates us as unique, that he creates us for each other, with the capacity for relationship, and with relationship comes responsibility, fidelity. The imagio Dei, the image of God, is central to this discussion. It's in the background, but it's central to how we understand fidelity going forward. In the Torah, in the rest of the first five books of the Bible, fidelity is construed as a, as a relationship, as a bedrock for a new society. These are slaves who have spent 400 years, multiple generations upon generations, as chattel slaves, and are now in the span of a generation supposed to become a functioning people, a nation among the rest of the world. How does that happen? With a bedrock commitment to fidelity in relationship. And so the Torah unpacks that. And we read on in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and in our 21st century postmodern mindset, we kind of scratch our head and say, whoa, that's harsh. Whoa, that's difficult. Whoa, that's, that's just mean. And we forget that the backdrop, the context is to instruct a people in the necessity of faithfulness that without that bedrock principle of faithfulness to one another, nothing else works. Without faithfulness, without fidelity, society collapses. And so the Old Testament shifts the story of adultery, if you will, the, 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 the issue of adultery from an economic problem to a covenant challenge. Faithfulness is not just an economic proposition. Yeah, things go easier if you're faithful economically. Instead, it's if the principle, I will be your God and you will be my people, means anything, you will be faithful to one another. And you will care and tend to that faithfulness. Jesus takes it a step further. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, a woman who has been caught in adultery. Now, given the ancient Near Eastern mindset, the man caught in adultery, nowhere to be found. Interesting there. The woman who's caught in adultery is brought before Jesus. Teacher, what do we do with her? The, the law says she ought to be stoned. Well, not exactly. It's not exactly what the law says, but okay, that's your interpretation of it. 
Jesus writes in the dust. We have no idea what he, what he writes with. And he just, he just sits there, silent. You who are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. You, you men who have gathered to throw stones at this woman. Whoever's, whoever's sinless, go ahead. I'm watching. And he keeps writing in the dust. And one by one, the group dwindles till no one's left but this woman who has been traumatized and abused and treated like dirt. And Jesus, sitting there, and Jesus looks up and he says, no one left to accuse you? No. Well, then I don't either. Go and sin no more. The Jesus shifts this whole discussion to radical forgiveness and a recovery of holiness. That, that faithfulness as Jesus defined it and understood it, he knew faithfulness would be broken. He, he understood that people are broken, that, that whatever else happened in creation, we broke it in the garden. And so on goes, year upon year, generation upon generation, the capacity to break relationships. And Jesus understood that, and he said, forgiveness and holiness together heal broken faithfulness. The loss of fidelity can be repaired with forgiveness and recovery of holiness. Now, before you go, well, now wait a second, this forgiveness thing, sometimes, you know, we go to forgiveness too quickly. I agree. Forgiveness is not a one-shot deal. It's not, a, it's not easily offered or easily given. But that's the work. Remember, at the end of John's gospel, the end of this gospel, where this story is told, Jesus breathes on the disciples. I won't do that today because I'm just getting over the sinus cold. He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whatever you forgive on earth is forgiven in heaven. The mission that we've been given according to John's gospel, the great commission according to John, is a great commission of forgiveness. Because the goal is fidelity. And the reality is that we're all broken. Paul puts it even more interestingly when he talks about purity as the image of the church in Ephesians 5. He, he paints a portrait in Ephesians, of the church as Christ's beloved. And we know how often, as followers of Jesus, we break faith with him. And yet, we are adorned as a bride with no earthly reason to wear the white of fidelity at the wedding but Christ still welcomes us as faithful.
the arc of Scripture moves us to an ever deeper fidelity and faithfulness to each other within marriage and to one another in covenant community. They are, they are symbiotic relationships. They are tied together. And they are at the heart of our freedom. Horace, the Roman scholar, poet, wrote that fidelity is the sister of justice. And I think it's impossible, it would be a dereliction of duty on my part as a preacher to try to avoid talking about fidelity without talking about the Me Too era that we're in. I'm probably going to do it badly. I'm... <laughs> Well, of that I have no doubt. But if fidelity is the sister of justice, then certainly our fidelity to one another in community as followers of Jesus points to a way forward for the rest of the world as we try to figure out how to listen to women who have been abused, how to listen to women who have been assaulted, how to heal a generation of men who have treated women like the ancient Near Eastern gods as proprietary, as objects for their power. If fidelity is the sister of justice, our practice of fidelity, our simple practice of fidelity, shows the world another way. How do we do that? Well, I think it's important to understand the imagio Dei and gender, that when God says he places his image on us, he places it on us, male and female, that men and women share the image of God. And frankly, if that isn't enough to call us to fidelity, I'm not sure what else is. Fidelity in relationship simply means you bear the image of God. Each of us. The Benedictines argued it this way. When the poor and impoverished, the sick and the needy, knocked on the door of the monastery late at night, you go and you answer the door. And you welcome them in, not because they are poor and weak and sick and needy, but because they are Jesus. We, we live sacramentally with each other, seeing in each other the grace of God at work. Seeing in each other God's already given capacity to us, male and female. And the fact that that image has been given to both men and women means at its essential root an equality, a leveling of the playing field between men and women. We can argue 
that men and women have different roles in society, great. Let's have that argument. What we can't argue, based on Genesis 1, based on Exodus 20, based on John, based on Paul, what we cannot argue is that men and women aren't equal in every way before God and within community. And that equality, that commitment of fidelity to one another's equality means that in this age especially, we have a unique responsibility to believe the women who step forward and say, I have been a victim of assault. I don't care what your opinions are about what's happened in the last week. You cannot deny that an assault took place. And if you dare try, well, may the wrath of God visit you. Because we have, as an obligation to fidelity, as an obligation to the commandments that God has laid out to be community together, to believe those who stand up and say, I've been assaulted, I've been wounded, I am broken. And to believe their stories, and to seek their healing. And that means we raise up young men and women who know how to respect the Imagio Dei, the image of God, in their bodies and their souls. It means that part of our work in forming the next generation, in forming our own generation, is in reminding each other that we bear the image of God. Moses didn't write this. God didn't write this on a tablet of stone. Don't commit adultery because he was a cosmic killjoy who didn't want you to enjoy sex. God wrote it because fidelity matters. Faithfulness to one another heals. And so we are called to be a community that practices fidelity because without fidelity, justice is all alone and it cannot function. So, this morning, some questions for us to think about. How is fidelity the bedrock of your relationships? How do we shift from an instrumental view of people? That person can help me, that person can help me, so I'll have a relationship with them. To an authentically relational view of people. How do we welcome those into our lives that have absolutely no benefit to us? What does truth-telling, belief, confession, and forgiveness mean to a church in a Me Too time? And finally, most importantly, how is the other Christ for you? 
Look around at each other. How is that person Christ for you? That's what the seventh commandment is ultimately getting at. How do we see the image of God in one another? And how do we nurture and protect it and hold it and believe it? One more thing. Leave it to Mother Teresa of Calcutta to have the best last word. I do not pray for success, she says. I ask for faithfulness. May our prayer as a church be not a prayer to be a successful church, a big church, a great church, a well-known church. May we be a faithful church. And may that faithfulness be understood as fidelity one to another. That when we break relationship with each other, and we will, we will repair it. When we are damaged, we will share it. When we hear about the damage of others, we will believe it. And we will make each other whole even in the midst of our continued brokenness. It is an enormous challenge. It is impossible for us to do in our own strength, which is why the finger of God wrote it on the first tablet, so that we would know without a doubt the Lord sovereign of the universe is with us in the constant quest to be a people of faithfulness. Thanks be to God for his word.